Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by the founder of True Local, Mark LaFleur, who sold his company in 2021 for $16.8 million. But before we get there, as you're going to hear in his conversation today with John, what really kickstarted his company was a successful pitch on the popular Canadian TV show, Dragon's Den. For those of you in the US, um, this is a Canadian version and UK version of Shark Tank. Now, I actually found this episode for you all and linked it in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. We recently learned that approximately 40% of you who listen to the show aren't subscribed. So if you please hit that subscribe button, it would truly help our show grow. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Mark LaFleur, who, as I mentioned, started True Local, which is a subscription business allowing people to buy locally raised meats online. Now, during today's interview, I want you to look out for a few things that Mark did. One was how he raised money without giving up all his equity, how he found new marketing avenues for his company, how he sold his company to celebrity investors, specifically the Dragons, how he utilized influencer marketing to accelerate his company's growth, and how he avoided selling his company to the wrong acquirer. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold his company True Local to emerge in 2021 is Mark LaFleur. Enjoy. Mark LaFleur, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Happy to be here, long-time listener. So happy to finally be on the show. What is it when they do on live talk shows or like long-term listener, first-time caller or something like that? Something like that. This is, this is one of those scenarios. I'm dating myself. I'm glad that you've been a long-term listener and I want to hear about this business, True Local. So take me back to the beginning. What was the founding story about True Local? What's the business do? So True Local, fairly simple business model. Um, we do an online subscription box that does locally raised meat products. So um, when I say it's fairly familiar, you can think of any of the meal kits that are out there, HelloFresh, um, Chef's Plate, those types of things. Our niche on that, though, was that we wanted to do exclusively proteins. Um, when you looked at the space at the time, like this is around 2015, 2016, it was really starting to heat up. And you saw some major valuations coming out, especially with companies like Blue Apron out of the U.S., and these companies are raising, you know, tens of millions of dollars. So we kind of saw the opportunity of proven business model, right? So, you know, direct consumer, e-com, fairly simple, but nobody was really focusing on the protein side. But then to make it a value add, what we did was do the local aspect. So especially when people were starting to spend a little bit more time educating themselves on what they were eating, we realized that local is one of the biggest, uh, the biggest decision uh, deciding factors for consumers. So, so it's a subscriber mark each month would get a box and inside there would be a, a variety of different locally produced uh, and farmed proteins. Is that yeah. right? They can choose the products. So that's the difference is that, you know, every single product in there, we have over 150 different products at its peak. Um, you can mix and match from anything. So you can get your lamb, you can get your beef, your chicken. The only stuff that we were offering at the time that wasn't from the specific province you were in was uh, the wild caught fish. So obviously the focus for us was wild caught. 
Um, and, you know, throughout the, you know, five years of building the business, um, we were offering in Ontario, Alberta, and BC. Got it. And so that makes sense. I think people get the, the kind of subscription box idea. To be clear, though, this was not a curated box of meat. It wasn't like you went out and selected them and surprised, this is what's in your box this month. They got to pre-select from a list of, 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 of types of meat. So they knew what they were, what they were getting effectively. Yeah, it was really important to us at the time that we made sure that this became a lifestyle behavior rather than a novelty. And so giving people the ability to pretty much substitute all of their meat shopping with whatever they're, you know, if they're big time chicken eaters or big time pork eaters, or maybe they like their ground meats. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't just sort of, okay, subscribe to this and we'll surprise you and hope that we do well. It was, no, you're going to get exactly what you want. And who are you getting the supply from? Yeah, so we would go around to pretty much every small scale farmer, producer, butcher shop. Um, the way the food industry works is you've got producers and you've got suppliers and you can change the, these names can be interchangeable. But if we had the ability to build relationships with small time farmers, we would work with them, you know, get an understanding of how they're raising the animals. Um, and then they would typically have someone who would do their packaging um, or they, we would introduce them to the network that we built of people who do their packaging and vice versa. Sometimes we would meet an amazing distributor or an amazing producer, supplier, um, and they say, hey, well, listen, we're working with, you know, so-and-so farm or producer down the road. They have amazing products. So there is a, a, a fairly complex supply chain aspect to it and a relationship between the suppliers and the producers. And from a marketing perspective, like if I'm a true local a customer and I go on your website to select and I'm, I'm in the mood for chicken and pork, whatever. If I'm, am I seeing the name of the producer or, or is everything rebranded effectively repackaged as a true local product as if you were vertically integrated, meaning like you owned both the retail and the wholesale piece. Like, do you know what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, did you course. rebrand other people's product? Yeah. So uh, things are changing now, but at the time it was all the individual producer and supplier. And that was one of the keys for us because at the end of the day, if we just at the time rebranded everything, it wasn't what people were necessarily looking for. So ironically now the company is changing because they are focusing on putting it under a banner name, which is the true local, uh, the true local brand. Because now that, you know, the company's more mature, we have the ability to go and say, these are the baselines and standards that true local wants to see from its producers. Therefore, meet those standards, and then we can get everything across the board. But at the time, starting off, people really wanted that connection to the producer and to know, you know, who, where is this, and yeah, and they probably they didn't, have, you didn't have as no, uh, as much brand equity in the early days, right? So they're like, who is this true local? I'll give them a try, but I, I kind of like to know the end product. I'm assuming, you know, people people, people putting stuff in their mouths. They they want to make sure that it's legitimate, and, and so being able to kind of show which farmers your buying from would probably give them a sense of confidence, I'm guessing. Absolutely. And part of our playbook also was that we weren't a meat company, right? We were giving these producers a better way to connect to consumers and vice versa. So we were just acting as the middleman and being the platform. We provided, um, we, we would generate the demand by having a brand that people could go to and an easy to use website. And then we will handle the logistics on the back end. So warehousing, distribution, last mile delivery. So we were just trying to act as that. Um, and, and it worked out really well and it was timely. Um, for what people were looking for. But it does beg the question, could the consumer not have gone direct and, and gone to this true local site and go, okay, ABC Farm has this great locally raised I don't know, veal or whatever. I'm not a big meat eater, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm flying blind here. But uh, it couldn't they have just said, 
I don't need true local. I can just go call the farmer and, or call the, couldn't I just do that? Yeah, definitely. Those are things that we wrestled with a lot early on. Um, what we ended up settling on was it's actually two different customers. Um, th- it's actually three, but just to keep it simple, the people that are going to go and shop directly with the farmer, we recommend that they do that. You know, it's like, look, if they're in your area, go for it. The thing that we provide the value in is that maybe you're going to go to that farmer or that producer and you're going to get your beef, but they're not going to have your chicken, your pork, your fish individually vacuum sealed and delivered. Right. So the whole thing that we saw was, okay, people that do go to the farm, they actually use us as well because we're able to supplement the things that they can't get in one location. And on the flip side, if there are any customers, let's say it was price, right? Like maybe there was a a price conscious customer. We would always recommend that, look, if the beef is too much for you, well, there's these, you know, couple producers and suppliers in your area. Why don't you go buy in bulk from them? And then we'll supplement what else you need on the other side. So that came with time. Like when you're early stage, just getting started, everything is a panic and everything is a crisis, right? Like everything is a problem. So for us, it was oh my God, how do we stop people from finding our producers and going directly to them? And then as the business kind of evolves and you know you kind of grow naturally, you start realizing the value that you provide. And it became very apparent that even though people would reach out to us to be like, hey, can I order direct from the farm? Those people still ordered from us. And it was just, you know, became this, this exercise in, in defining your audience and what exactly value you're bringing to your consumer. Love it. We'll be back to the show in just a flash. Before we go there, I wanted to tell you about a new software application that I've been working on for the last couple of years. It's called VidGuide. And it's an application that allows you to create and integrate video-based instructions directly into the software applications your employees use daily. Think about it as a tool to implement the built-to-sell methodology right inside your company. With VidGuide, your employees have the guidance to complete everyday tasks inside your company without guessing, so your business can thrive without you. With VidGuide's Google Chrome extension, your instructions will automatically appear as your employees use the tools they need to do their jobs, whether it's QuickBooks or HubSpot, Salesforce, and just about every software package imaginable. We integrate with literally tens of thousands of SaaS applications. If you use it to run your company, we integrate with it. Employees will always have access to your latest instructions, and you'll know exactly who has viewed your instructions and when. As a Built to Sell Radio listener, I wanted to give you a free trial so you can see what we've been up to. Just go to vidguide.com slash free. That's vidguide.com slash free to get your free trial today. Now back to the show. Cash flow. How did the cash move? So, customer subscribes to a monthly um, subscription box of protein. Take me through where the cash moves from there. So, you collect the cash. Like, when do you pay the supplier, and how did that all work? It was it was way simpler than that. It was just inventory. That's why the suppliers loved us. So, for us, we would purchase it from them. We would store it. And then we'd send it out. We'll carry, let's say, two weeks worth of inventory at any given time. Um, and we were, once again, we didn't know any better, right? So going into the space, like we were always paying up front um, for the most wow. part. And that's not typically something that farmers and producers are used to. They're used to like net 90 from restaurants. Yeah. And then the restaurant goes out of business before they even get no paid. They loved you. You're paying up front for a refrigerator full of meat. It's awesome. Yeah, things okay. you don't know, huh? <laughs> but, but that's expensive. And I want to know how you finance this business. Because if you're taking inventory, 
and you're starting up and you guys, as I understand, relatively young guys when you started. Who, first of all, who is your co-founder? So my co-founder is Greg Quayle. Um, both of us were actually door-to-door meat salesmen um, at uh, yeah. another company. So I'm sure, you know, in Canada, or at least in Ontario, people are going to be familiar with, you get a knock at the door. It's some dude saying, hey, listen, you know, are you around tomorrow to get a free sample of meat? And then ta-da, you got me or Greg that show up and we're like, hey, here's your free sample. But also, can I steal, you know, 10 minutes of your time to tell you why you should order a year's worth of product? So we uh, we worked there together and, you know, we were we were the it, it was an interesting company. You know, I always say that the company did really well. It was around for 14 years. The product is amazing. It's just the business model, in my opinion, didn't make any sense. You know, the idea of doing door to door, you don't got a website. There's no branding behind it. Um, so Greg and I were the younger ones um, at that company, and we would always kind of talk, you know, just like, look, you know, what, what do we want to do here? You know, we're we're selling, you know, we're, we're slinging a year's worth of meat. You know, we could do better. Um, and ironically, you know, I had told him, I'm like, look, you know, I'm I'm going to do this. I, I had this really garbage business plan that made no sense. Um, I still have it. It's a one page, it's like one page, <laughs> just like goal, make money product, sell meat. Like it, it was, and of course at the time I thought I was being really sophisticated. Um, but eventually I, you know, I called him up and I was like, look, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm going to quit and we're going to make it happen. Well, I'm going to make it happen. And then he's like, okay, cool. And I think it was like within the day he called me back and he's like, yo, I'm in to do this also. So we pretty much, uh, over the holidays, you know, reached out to our employer and we're like, Hey, listen, can we talk in the new year? And we let them know that we were Parting ways to go do our own thing. And how did you guys split the equity, you and, and Greg? So it was uh, it was actually 70-30. So we did it 70-30 um, initially. And that was because I'd put a lot of the work in and put the model together and figured all of that out. And ironically, initially, when I had asked him to join me and do it, and he said no, I think I was willing to go 60-40. But then when he called back, and it was, it was like, well, look, now it's 70-30. Half joking, um, but it ended up playing out that way. But we did have an agreement. Um, I think that... We were dead serious about doing this, but I think when we both quit our jobs and we both spent the first day getting together to say, okay, what do we do next? Um, it became more real. And I think a couple months into it, we just had a real conversation and he's like, Hey, look, you know, if, if we're still doing this after a year and, and you know, I'm, I'm pulling my weight and doing what I got to do, I want to go 60, 40. And I was like, no problem. You know, like I'm totally fine with that. Um, and that's eventually what ended up happening. So the, the deal before taking on any investors ended up being 60, 40. Got it. And so, but early days, again, you're, you're inventorying stuff. So how did you accumulate the the first amount of cash to get even the first few orders in? Because you would have had to place, I'm assuming, orders for protein before having any money from customers. Did you have some startup capital or what was that like? Yeah, we put in about 40 Gs. So combined. Um, and that's what we started with. You know, the the thing with True Local and, you know, always kind of talk about it is that we built up to about $20 million um, of subscription revenue. But we did that with, you know, in total at, at the at, by the final round, $940,000 in funding, which for us is one of the you know claims to fame for True Local and, and the way the business was operated. Because when you look at D2C food and, and e-com in general, a lot of these people were raising a lot of money. Um, and burning through a lot of cash. So luckily, because we didn't raise that much and we spread it out over three rounds, um, we just kind of grew more sustainably. Um, we didn't reach you know real profitability till year three, three and a half, but we weren't burning you know millions a month. Like it wasn't like this crazy amount of burn. Um, and ironically, I'd, I'd love to say that that was by design, and you know we had the 
the poise and the foresight to do things sustainably and, and, you know, grow responsibly, but that wasn't the case at all. It's just so we couldn't raise, you know, we would go to VCs and we were about a year too late. Now, you know, meal kits and the food industry and DTC started kind of coming down the downward trend. Um, so it made it difficult. So we got a lot of no's, but a lot, every single time, you know, we would fail to raise around some giant, of course, and I always say this, the tail in business, right? You get through these initial, these initial battles and then you come out the other side and it's, oh, there was actually something better for you. So um, in the early days, it was just our own money. Um, we put it in. It was a year until we uh, found our first angel investor. And with this angel investor, we got $100,000. And that allowed us to hire our first two employees. So that was about a year into it. And how much of the company did you have to give up at that point to that angel? We did it as a safe. Um, so we did. And this is actually a funny story. So a couple of things. Can you explain what a safe is? Yeah. So a safe is a simple agreement for future equity. Um, it's kind of the, unless things have changed, um, I'm fairly still certain that the, it's kind of the gold standard right now in, in early stage funding, um, like a, as an early stage funding instrument. And it's similar to a convertible note or convertible debt. However, what ends up happening is the safe came out through Y Combinator to help make it easier, uh, make the discussions around valuation easier for the founder and the investor. So what a safe does is it pretty much says, look, we're not going to value the company now. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to put our money in and we're going to set what they have as a cap. And the cap is the most important part. So the cap in a safe means that <clears throat> because the company hasn't been valued, let's say you take $100,000 and then you go and raise at a $5 million valuation. Well, what that means is the $100,000 that that safe holder gave you is going to convert at a $5 million valuation. Sounds great. The problem though with that is that what happens if in between the time that the person, uh, the safe holder invests the money and the company decides to go and it goes in this rocket ship growth and now it's valued at $50 million. Well, that investor has missed out on all of that upside and all of the benefit of being an early, an early investor. So to protect investors, what the cap does is it says, I'll give you, you know, this $100,000. We'll worry about the valuation later. However, the cap is where the, the highest level that my equity is going to convert at. So let's say an $8 million cap, which is pretty, you know, fair market value for a cap. Um, if I give you $100,000 and you raise at a $5 million valuation, my $100,000 converts into equity at a $5 million valuation. But if the valuation goes to $10 million prior to, so the initial, the initial round is $10 million and you have a cap at $8 million, even though the round is a $10 million round, my $100,000 is going to be capped. It's going to cap out at the $8 million valuation. So it's a, it's a protection mechanism that's in there and it works really well. I'm a huge fan of them. I, if I'm starting a company, I'm going to do it via safe and I've invested in many safes. And of course, there's also a discount. So the discount is pretty much just saying uh, easiest ways. If I put in a hundred thousand, you're going to give me a hundred and twenty thousand worth of equity. As you know, once again, being an, an early investor. Got it. And what was the cap in your safe? I want to say it's like uh, I feel like I should remember this, but it was either five or eight million. I, I want to say it was five. Um, and the the funny story about this, and once again, you know, everything happening for a reason. So you know, we're really close with this first this initial investor. I consider him a mentor and a really good friend now. And he was the first person that ever believed in me and and all this stuff. So the one thing though was that we were actually I went to him originally and said, hey, look, I'll give you the typical uh, you know hundred thousand dollars for ten percent, right? That's the the gold standard. And once again, my background, we came from no money, and I knew nothing about business, like. Zero. Never even read a business book. So 
when you hear about a million dollar valuation, you're like, this is like generational wealth. Like that's kind of what you're hearing, right? So let alone actually having a million dollars, you know, raising at a million dollar valuation, you still don't even know the difference between that. So I was pushing and pushing. I'm like, come on, man, $100,000, you know, 10%. And he's a real estate guy. So he ended up sitting on it for a while. I felt like he was going to be in. He said he was in, but I kept pushing. And eventually I ended up talking to uh, one of the co-founders at Vidyard. So just one of Canada's, you know, darling child, you know, startups just absolutely crush it. They're out of KW. Um, and he's the one who introduced me to a safe. And he almost laughed at me for being like, dude, do not do an equity deal at a million dollar valuation. In a year, you are going to be completely unmotivated to do any work because you won't have enough in the business. And he said all this to me and I'm like, this all makes sense. So of course, I then go back to this investor and I'm like, hey man, look, I really, really still want the money and we need it and we want you, but I got to say the deal changed a bit. We're doing it as a safe. Luckily, um, he was like, okay, I understand and uh, did it anyway. But yeah, that was, uh, that, was, that was the first time we ever raised money and it was the $100,000 that got us our first employees. Awesome. Okay. And so let's, I want to get into the financing, the, the additional rounds of financing in a moment, in particular, talking a little bit about Dragon's Den and what that experience was like. But before I do that, I, I want to know how you did the marketing. Uh, you're both, you and Greg were door to door salespeople. So you've got, you know, you've got a lot of experience eyeball to eyeball with customers, which I'm sure came in handy. But where, how did you market your subscription? What was the, what was the model? Yeah, well, I always, you know, there's so many, there's so many ways to answer that question. So I guess from the starting point, um, I think to our uh, detriment, actually, we would like close the door on the idea of ever doing like any in-person door-to-door stuff because that's where we came from. And we wanted to, you know, we, we, we perceived to be better. But the thing that we did get from that is that talk about talking to your customer. Like being a direct salesperson, you're in the house dealing with objections nonstop every day. Like we felt like we knew the customer better than anybody else. So this was during the weird times of like in food, there was these huge arguments between organic and natural and no added hormones or antibiotic free. Like the claims were really becoming a big, a big issue for a lot of people and trying to get transparency. So for us, it was, you know, how do we start with the messaging? Like, what is this brand about? Because at the end of the day, that was how we wanted to win. I'm, I'm a huge branding guy. And actually part of the reason why, you know, True Local was the, the, the option was because I really wanted to enter a market where we could prove that a strong brand could do, could do a lot for a company. And we figured, look at meat. Nobody likes to think about meat. Like if you're a meat lover, you love steak, but you still don't like to think about steak. You just like to eat it. So we figured, okay, what if we could reframe that? Like, what if we could make meat cool or make meat sexy? And I like to think that we succeeded in that. You know, our social following is is blown up and we would get so many submissions from people that would just take a picture of the black box. So it's the black box that says, I love local. And that that in itself became its own marketing channel. So not to, to kind of talk too, too high level, but that was a big part of us. It really was, how do we make the brand something that people want to align with? How can we try to be the Canadian Starbucks of meat? So early on, we got the, the branding and the messaging down, and then it really became a trial and error. Like we were an e-com business and everybody thinks there's a silver bullet. Everybody thinks that there's one channel that you're going to find. If you can become a pro at Facebook, or you can become a pro at Amazon, or you can become a pro at Google, or maybe you're you're, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to be a little craftier and you go down the Pinterest route or some sort of programmatic marketing, whatever it might be, you think it's a one size fits all. And we did early on also. And what we realized it wasn't until about year three or four when we're sitting in our meetings, you know, 
checking all the financials and all the different marketing channels we were using and realizing that it's it's there's no silver bullet like the combination and the levers in which you pull in your entire marketing strategy are what amount to a silver bullet so in the early days um i can think back to it very clearly like what channels worked well for us at what time because it was always one of these things where we'd get a breakthrough that would last about 6 months and then it fell 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 off and became like a backbone while we looked for something else so in the early days um, we would do a ton of ground and pound, just not the same door knocking style. So pop-up shops, like we loved going to gyms, um, breaking into that gym community was really big for us. So we crossed it ground and pound. Yeah. Ground and pound. <laughs> yeah, I just, love that. And so what does that mean? That means like hitting the ground, like, and actually just getting face to face with customers. Yeah, that's what it was. You know, we, okay. we got lucky with a couple of big wins. Like when it came to the gym, we would just show up there and have like frozen meat in a cooler and be like, look, we can have this delivered to your house. Do you want to give it a shot? Um, and we would just have that one-on-one interaction with people. And once again, you know, people who do digital marketing in any capacity, you know, that, the lifetime value of them are is quite a little bit less typically, at least from what we've seen, because they're ordering off of an ad, right? Whereas any time in the early days, like the longest lasting customers we ever got were the ones that we got in the early days. And that's because they met myself and they met Greg and they heard the story and they built that relationship with the brand early on. Um, so when we would do pop-up shops and gyms, it worked out really well for us because we didn't have the money to run any sort of ad campaigns at scale. The customers that we were getting with this sort of ground and pound initiative, they lasted a long time. So our retention was really, really high with it. So that started off with just like your typical big box gyms. So we would do things like the LA Fitness and the Good Life and whoever would let us come in. And we got some success there. What but it was the worked. economics there, Mark? Were you paying the gyms or giving them a commission or what was the... Honestly, no. They, I think they just felt bad for us. And they were like, sure. Like you got these two kids that are just like, they just want to do a little pop-up thing, but it was really informal. I think they saw some value in it too. Like for the gyms, right? They always want to put stuff in there to get more people engaged and involved. So it wasn't this very uh, sophisticated business relationship. It wasn't like we were dealing with head office or anything. We would just go in, talk to a manager and they'd be like, you know, come on in. It's all good. So what ended up happening is we would do these big, uh, big box gyms and we would find some success. But it wasn't until, and once again, now because we're seeing success there, now we're just, you know, now we're running it as a system. So list out all the gyms in the city. We're going to reach out to them. We're going to call, email, show up, whatever it is. But when we started getting into new types of gyms, so especially CrossFit, that's where things started taking off. Um, getting into uh, uh, any sort of, and once again, maybe call it a channel partner, whatever you want, but the CrossFit community is an avid, avid, avid community. So when we could start breaking into that, you really started seeing the growth start compounding because CrossFit people love to talk about CrossFit. And, you know, that's just the kind of the age old saying, but they love to talk about anything they love. So when we started getting into the CrossFit community and people started ordering, we actually ended up having it as a bit of a metric where if we got seven people to order in a gym, we had that gym. And then now we started seeing consistent sales coming in week after week because those seven people start talking about it. Um, and I know seven is the funny number because I think that was Facebook's number two, um, where it was like, if you have seven friends or something like that, but we noticed that early on. So that was, that's what I talk about when I talk about sort of the early ground and pound days where the sales really were based on how often Greg and I were getting in front of people. So you're in the, the, the pop-up shops and then you, you cross over to CrossFit, excuse the uh, turn of phrase. At CrossFit, did you go beyond just the gyms and start to penetrate some of the social counts and some of the other 
forums through which CrossFit people communicate? We did, but not at the time. So back to the whole silver bullet thing, like it's all kind of a compound. So for us, it was gyms in our early years. Like year one was gyms. Year two was trade shows. Um, I would say year three was paid advertising. And then on the paid advertising side, we also went down the influencer and affiliate marketing route. And when I say that, like we did it at scale, like we were at our peak onboarding, you know, 80 to 100 uh, micro influencers a month. Um, and what we would do is we would alternate. So we would do 80 to 100 micro influencers one month and then five mega or, you know, large scale influencers on the alternating month. So we didn't actually get into. I think people, Mark, before we go for that, I want to make sure we define micro-influencer and what influencer marketing is. I know a lot of young people will know what that is, but maybe some listeners are a little bit fuzzy. So can you just distill, explain uh, influencer marketing in the most basic terms? Yeah. The idea for us was that we would find people that had large social followings, um, primarily on Instagram. That was kind of our go-to. And we'd reach out to them and say, hey, listen, if we send you a free box, do you mind making a couple posts? And what we found to be really successful was keeping it as loose as possible. And I think this is kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of people say, where it's got to be really structured and really regimented. But we got really lucky with our product. So if you've got a a random product that people aren't using every day, you do got to kind of sell an influencer on, well, use this product and it'll be great. Um, You know, typically they're going to want money for it. We never had problems onboarding any influencer, regardless of the size, because people love, you know, people love meat. Like if you're eating meat, you know, for us to send you a box of steaks, people are like, yeah, absolutely. Send that to me. And what was your cost the, on that? Whatever the, the meat costs were, maybe like on the low end, like 60, 70 bucks, you know, of, of product that we would send out. Um, you know, so the way that it worked really well for us was that we were really, 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 really good at reaching out to influencers and building that one-on-one relationship. Because once again, the company always was, it was this like small group of friends just trying to pull it off, pull it off. And we were really, really authentic with how we would reach out to them. We would say like, look, we're just trying this out. want to see what's up. Um, and we would send them some product and they love the product. So that was the thing we've never paid for any influencer marketing at all. It's always just been product. And I always, when I try to talk to people about how we did influencer marketing, that's what I think was a really big advantage for us because that's very different than most people have to pay for it. Um, So that was always a really big thing. And then um, on top of that, it was just, we never used any of the influence or we try to avoid, we tried them a couple of times, but avoid the influencer networks. So like there are companies out there that specialize in onboarding influencers for various companies. And what we found was, once again, at scale, like if we're onboarding like a thousand influencers in a month, or sorry, in, in a year, um, we it was very easy for us to see and prove out that 20% of your influencers are, are doing 80% of the returns. Um, so what we found was that if you were to do something with one of these networks or a business, these influencers don't care about you. They don't even know you. Like they're just taking any product from any company and saying, yep, yeah, I'm down to do it. That didn't work for us. We would specifically go after people that came, that either cared about local, cared about the hype around the company or cared about the meat products we were selling. And that made a really, really big, big difference for us. So it was during that time, that, and sorry, to, to define a micro, when we look at micro influencers, we were looking at anybody, you know, 20,000 followers and under. And once again, all of this is out of necessity. It's not like we had this, you know, beautiful poise and came up with it. Um, pretty much what was happening is influencer marketing had been around for a long time. We were late to the game, if anything. Um, but it was getting to the point where people were getting kind of tired of it. You know, it's okay. I've seen this. 
million, you know, follower account and they're pushing this product. I know that it, they're being paid for it. And what we started seeing as an industry was people were being more receptive to their peers. So you're more likely to, to get a product that your peer tries than some major influencer. And that's kind of where the rise of micro influencers came from. Um, and we, we got really lucky with that in terms of how low would you go? 20,000 was the top end. What would, what would be the low end of, of micro influencer? We would send a box to anybody who could properly articulate to us why they liked our company and wanted to just give it a shot and do a partnership. Like if we had people that were like, I'm just starting my blog, but, and they would write like, and you can very easily tell the difference. Like we get inundated with messages that are, Hey, insert name here. I love your company, insert product here. This is who I am. And we, that's the one thing, like as a, as a founder that had to do all this, like once again, you know, do the grind. It's like, we, we index very high on people that care. Like we want to work with those people. So it wasn't about your follower count. It was, you know, cause we've had people that have like 300 people on Instagram and no social following and they'll go bring in 30 sales because they just talk to their friends or host a party hmm. or something like that. So we never, because we didn't have to pay for it, we were always more than happy to give out product. That was always fine for us. And obviously it still hits your income statement the same way, but it is, it's very different in terms of what you're getting back for it. So we always gave it a shot with people and, and it served us well. Got it. How did you finance this business? So you had the first safe at 100K, the first outside investment. Well, first of all, you and Greg invested your own cash to the tune of 40 grand. Then you had 100 grand that came in with the, the kind of first round or angel round, maybe we'll call it that, in the form of a safe. 100K with a 5 million cap. I get all of that. What was the next sort of financing round that you did? Yeah. So it was uh, right before Dragon's Den. Um, so we raised at a $5 million valuation and it was same thing, angels. So the initial investor came in again and he brought a friend with him. Um, and this is why I can't, and I'm still so close to these guys to this day. Like they're at my wedding. Um, they've been so supportive and I've always, I've been such a huge advocate for angels because that's the power of an angel. Like these it's silent, no preferred shares, no board seats allowed us to run the business the way we wanted to run the business. And it's because they invested in the right reason. It's because they believed in us. And then I wrong. So, yeah. So just to be clear, Mark, at this stage, uh, you did put a number on the business. We you did. Said it was worth 5 million bucks. Yeah. And if they were going to kick in 100K, they were going to get 100K, 100 of... Five million, whatever the percentage is. Yeah, is, am I getting that right? Yeah. So our second round was a priced equity round, um, and it once again it was it was it just made sense. We did the safe, and now it was about a year, probably another year had gone by. So we're like, look, we can do five million, and we raised another two hundred fifty thousand on that. So the initial investor put in another hundred, um, and then we got one hundred and fifty from a from one of his friends actually. Got it. And so in at that time, what was your revenue, like your ARR, annual recurring revenue? At, uh, yeah, that's the one thing I wish I remembered a little better. Um, I want to say it was like around the like 2 million range. Um, oh, wow. we, yeah, we hadn't hit, um, we hadn't hit like a bit, like our, our $4 million years. I know our $4 million year. So yeah, it would have been in his third year. So yeah, probably around the 2 million range, but we were growing. Like we were in a good spot, um, to be honest. And we hadn't even really done too, too much on the paid advertising front yet either. So there was a lot of upside and we knew going into Dragon's Den also, to be honest, we would have put the valuation higher if we could, but we had explained to them that on Dragon's Den, we're obviously going to bring down the valuation because you know how the dragons are. Like if, 
it, it doesn't really matter what you have. They're going to blow you up on valuation. We already had a business model that people were skeptical about um, in a highly competitive market. And we needed to go on there and make sure that we could get, you know, some sort of good, you know, showing of the product and the business. So we felt that if we just started getting hung up on valuation, it would make no sense. So that was... Yeah, Dragon, Dragon's Den, for folks who may not know that term, is very popular in both Canada and the UK. In the United States, it goes under the brand Shark Tank. But one of those uh, uh, shows that, that you've got a, a panel of of grizzled investors and, and they get pitched ideas. And you guys went on the Canadian version called Dragon's Den. Yeah. What was that? What was that like? What I'm, I'm really curious. I've never been on. I don't, you know. Yeah. I, I interviewed Michelle Romano about the sale of her first company, which was the precursor to her becoming a dragon. So I, 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 I chatted with Michelle, but I'd be curious from your perspective, what it was like. Yeah. So ironically, Michelle is the one who ended up investing. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So honestly, let's, I guess it's, it's a few different types of conversations. So let's take the business aspect out of it. So valuations, financing, I actually recommend that all founders go through the show because it really gives you an opportunity to test who you are as, uh, as a founder and your ability to walk or to, to walk the walk if you talk the talk. So I always say from a personal development standpoint, you should go do it because it's a great challenge as a founder. And to be honest, it's probably one of the lighter challenges you're going to face. And I'm saying <laughs> that in the sense that if you can't handle going in the dragon's den, business is probably going to chew you up and spit you out. Like this is going out there and pitching a bunch of people on TV. That shouldn't be your biggest challenge. So for us, it was an amazing experience. Um, we've always been like, you know, once again, didn't have any money growing up. And I always kind of talk about this, like hard work is never a, a scary thing for people that had nothing growing up. It's because we, you know, we're used to hard work. The problem is we never get opportunity to show how hard we can work, right? Vice versa, where it's okay, well, you've got everything handed to you and now you actually have a, an issue with potentially being lazy or productive. So kind of came from that mentality uh, and always just been like a, a go-getter and, you know, like pretty much like a keener, I guess would be the word. So the, to where I'm going with this is that we showed up uh, three hours early to the audition in Barrie. So we, you know, had heard from people that had been on the show before how the process works. It probably has changed now, but they do the, um, the audition tour. They fly across Canada. The producers go out and you go to these different cities to audition. So idea is you kind of want to go to one of the slower cities because then there's less competition and they do pick a certain amount per location. So we did Barrie, Ontario, which is probably like three hours from where we were in Kitchener showed up three hours early and it was actually at a, a, you know, I think a, a college or a university campus. And we get there and of course there's nobody there. So we start walking around and we see like a lineup of people signing up and we're like, okay, great. I guess there are a couple people here. It's not too bad. So we get in line and we get to the front of the line and they're like, Hey, do you have your student card? And I'm like, what? Like, are you, are you not in this exam? So we'd actually gone into a line to, for, for the exam sign up. So we found out that we just got there so early, no one was there yet. Um, so anyway, lo long story short, you go through that, that, uh, that process and then they give you a heads up as to whether or not you get to go and actually pitch the dragons. Um, uh, and it, just because you pitch the dragons, it doesn't mean you're going to air. So the, uh, once again, my experience with it was great. They definitely tried to make TV out of it. So what I mean is if you've got cracks in the armor, like they're going to sniff it out and they're going to be like, you're going to make a really good, you know, mess up video. So what was the crack that they exploited in your model? You know what, to be honest, here's the free advice. Um, they're going to do this thing where they want to get to understand your business and they're going to ask you what like your biggest fears are like point blank. It's actually kind of comical. 
what are your biggest weaknesses? What are your biggest fears? And because we watched literally every single episode of Dragon's Den multiple times before going on, it was just like some of the questions were so specific in certain pitches and not others that I'm like, this is the information that they gave the producers. <laughs> so I always tell people, I'm like, listen, by all means, if you have answers for it, share that. But if you don't, you better be ready to answer that on stage because that is exactly what they're going to drill down on. So um, with us, we got, we got really fortunate. Um, I think we were very well prepared. I think when you look at Dragon... What was the question that, that you were... What, what was the weakness that you self-identified in the questionnaire? And- oh, we just, we had said, so we knew you got it to keep it light. I'm like, if we say some sort of actual skeleton in the closet, you know, I couldn't remember what it would have been at the time, but every business is, okay. you know, whether it's, you know, we only got a bit of money left or whatever. But I think we just said, um, people, is the market ready to have meat delivered in the mail? And that was the, the big issue at the time because people had gotten used to having meal kits delivered. But because a meal kit, you have a different expectation. And when you visualize a meal kit, you think about the green and you think about the, you know, the, the, the spices and you think about cooking it. You don't immediately think about thawing meat. Whereas mm-hmm. when you're selling exclusively meat, that is actually the first thing that jumps into your brain. You're like, how does that show up? Not on a hot July day at 40 degrees or 40, 40 degrees Celsius, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Like, what's going to happen to my meat? I'm assuming you had some sort of cold storage to, mechanism. That yeah, we use dry ice. Um, okay. So that was one of the things that we we dove into uh, on the show. So on the show itself, we you get the opportunity when to pitch. So it's like you know you guys have been accepted. When do you want to pitch? The beginning, the end, and of course I'm like I want to pitch on day one. Don't know why. I just I was like day one. You know, put all my eggs in the basket of if you do it in the beginning, maybe there's a risk that they're holding out because they want to keep seeing better pitches and see what happens. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, I'm like, look, I can only imagine what it's like to film for 30 days and hear a lot of the same pitches. I also don't want to go near the end when you got, you know, dragon, like, dragons are humans, right? And they also are running their other, their other businesses. You know, I wouldn't want to be in the den when you got a bunch of tired, uh, anxious dragons. So um, maybe tapped out and already made a few investments or like I'm already extended or whatever. Here. Exactly. So there's a lot of strategy behind it in that sense. And of course, as soon as we get there, um, they're already changing pitches on people. So you work with a producer to to iron out your pitch. And right before you're going to go out there, you get a final walkthrough from the producers and you get the final sign off. But some some of them, they're like, oh, you got to change this. And they're like, what do you mean? You already approved this. And you can kind of tell you're like, wow, that's, you know, that's tough. But we were the second pitch to go and the girl in front of us came out crying. So that was oh, a bad sign. So, so we're like, oh, <laughs> not, not a good. Dragons are angry. Yeah. And what did you, what did you go in asking for? So you just raised at a $5 million valuation. So 250 K. What did you go in asking for? Oh, it's honestly a great question. It was, it was a hundred thousand dollars at a certain valuation. It was a lower valuation than the $5 million valuation. Um, and once again, our investors were well aware of what we were doing and, and the whole plan and all this was. Um, so it, it was a, it was a reasonable valuation. I think at the time we had done like $290,000 or something re- like in some, some, somewhere in that ballpark, um, in, in the month. And, uh, you know, the, the, that, that never, the valuation did not become a sticking point in the conversation, which is exactly the way that we wanted it to be. Like, we didn't want to be out here arguing valuations. We wanted to argue, is there product market fit? Does this make sense? And do you believe that we're the team to bring this to life? And that's that's where the conversation ended up. Do you remember what the, Michelle Romano, one of the dragons, invested? Do you remember what the terms are that she invested in? Um, yeah. So that okay. So the the pretty much the way it goes in the show is that we ended up getting a deal with Michelle and Joe. So Joe from Joe Fresh at the time. 
Um, yeah. Of course, afterwards, that just kind of gets your foot in the door. It's then your job to follow up, reach back out, you know, actually try to work your way through the deal. So it was about eight months um, before we ended up actually getting a deal done. And it was with, just with Michelle, which worked out well for us because Michelle was the target we were there for. We had heard such amazing things about founders that had worked with her before. And of course, she has a background in e-com. Um, which at the time helped us a lot. And it's great because she's become, you know, I like to think of her as a mentor now. And, you know, we text and it's it's great to be able to pick her brain for some advice. And I've never met someone who is as high profile as her that is willing to hop on a call and text right away. So um, the terms of the deal were a little bit different than what ended up airing on the show. But that was because of eight months of going back and forth, watching the business grow. Um, so, yeah, that's that's pretty much how it ended up. It was different than what ended up on the show. Do you, do you remember what it was on the show? I want whatever we asked for on the show. So the, the hundred thousand for like, I, I forget, I, I'd have to pull it up. I, I can, anybody who's really interested, you can Google CBC yeah, dragons and season 13, um, true local. And you'll get all the details of the actual. Yeah. Well, and we'll put it in the show notes that built the cell. Cause I think people might actually want to refer back to it. So, uh, I do kind of yeah, learning about this. I do always like talking about Dragon's Den too, because, you know, to go from where we were at, you know, getting the company acquired and seeing where we started, I, I always, you know, I've always said like, if we could be an inspiration to any founder out there to either start or keep going, that's, you know, that's what, you know, that's, that's a huge part of why we did this. So I always think Dragon De- Dragon's Den, our Dragon's Den pitch, we were so young, we were so green, like we had no idea what we were doing, but it, it meant so much to us at the time. And you could tell. So I always say, I'm like, look, if you want uh, any sort of motivation or inspiration, go watch the original Dragon's Den and then you can kind of see where we ended up now. And there's a few of those actually, um, a few companies that have had really good Dragon's Den showing and then go on to sell for, you know, massive, massive amounts. I'm glad you raised the specter of selling for massive and massive amounts because that's exactly <laughs> what you did. And I want to now move to the sale uh, of True Local. So what what triggered you to want to sell this company. You were only five or six years in. Was there some sort of straw that broke the camel's back or? or Yeah, True Local. My goal was always to build True Local, prove everybody wrong and then have it acquired. Um, You know, I had had two businesses prior to starting True Local um, when I was in university. Uh, We did an instant messaging app called Tell uh, back in 2012. Knew nothing about business at all. I just heard that Snapchat got worth $3 billion. And as a student, like I couldn't even wrap my head around a million dollars, let alone what $3 billion was. So I was like, I'm in the wrong program. Uh, So pretty much that's where my sort of entrepreneur journey went. Um, And for obvious reasons, as a first time founder that failed, and then started another company um, after that, uh, with a co founder, uh, the University of Waterloo, made it further than we did with Tell. Um, But and we had VC pitches. um, But I couldn't barely get in the door, um, let alone actually do a pitch. Now, just to be clear here, I would never have invested in me at the time either. Once again, my business plan was like one page and it had like no numbers. And it was just like, you know, pretty much might as well just have like a crayon that said like take over world and, you know, like put it up in front of VCs. Um, but it, it, it definitely became a thing where um, it, it kind of started becoming personal. And, you know, I'd always kind of been counted out my whole life. And it got to a point where I was like, you know what, if you guys don't want to support me, screw you. Um, you know, we're going to build a company and we're going to do all of the things that we need to do. Um, we're going to start with a vision. We're going to use branding to show how, how successful a company could be with a strong brand. Want to put together a rock star team, want to go national, want to raise money and want to get acquired. So that was always the end goal and sort of the end game. Um, and it really just at that point became right time, right price. 
So it wasn't so much about, oh, well, you know, it was only five years or this and that. It's just that that was always kind of my initial game plan with the business. It was always... So, I, so how did it go from a dream to reality? What was what was the first step in the process? Well, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I have this, you know, the same trait that a lot of founders do. Like I'm, I'm fairly stubborn and, you know, it's kind of just like you get this idea in your head and you kind of start bulldozing towards it. So eventually um, after uh, Tell and Dash Task, those two companies had failed... I started taking a really hard look at, okay, well, we got traction. Like what caused, why, why can we get to that next level? And it became fairly apparent. It was because I was treating them like projects. It was nights and weekends. You know, there was no uh, full-time effort to it. And of course, that then leads into, oh, well, you got to quit your job to make this happen. So eventually, um, just made the decision like, okay, we're going to quit, go at this full-time. And I think it was just that, like being able to now take what I had learned. And of course, failing twice helped a lot. Um, I think it's a lot easier to fail twice, then quit your job and go all in. Then maybe we, if I'd quit my job before and didn't have these two failures, I wouldn't have made it work with True Local. But luckily, you know, the way things worked out, we got a lot of experience in the previous businesses. The team that you know we were able to put together was absolutely rock star, especially because we knew we couldn't compete with people um, that had the you know VC funding, but we could you know be everyone's favorite company. And that was sort of the the focus. And that requires a very different type of individual. So over five years of just doubling down on that and understanding that there really is no, you know, to the point that we were talking about earlier, there's no silver bullet. So you have to become an iterative business. Like you need to be data informed. You've got to iterate. You've got to realize that nothing, no single thing is going to work. But in aggregate, all of these little efforts and these little tests and these little initiatives and these 1% wins are going to add up to something in the end. So when we went from, I think it was about a million dollars, then $4 million, then $8 million, then about 20. So that's sorry, annual, annual uh, revenue. It just started becoming attractive to, to acquirers. And, you know, we reached profitability, I want to say in year three and a half. Um, and in terms of food companies that have turned a profit, there aren't many of them. And that's because they raised so much. So, you know, you did reach, I think, 19.8. I've got the numbers. That sounded about right. Yeah, 19.8. So ballpark, what kind, of margins, <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of EBITDA margins would you make on 20? Um, we're at about 10% at our peak. We did it. Got it. And it's a huge testament to the team. We have, we have amazing people that when it comes to procuring the product, when it comes to, um, you know, how we were doing our pricing, how we were setting up our, our point system, um, we never shot away from price. It was never something where we were trying to compete to the bottom. We never ran a, a ridiculously large amount of dollar discounts. If we ever did discounts, it was usually value. So we would add more product to a box. And what ended up happening is we ended up getting best in class um, uh, average order value. Well, first of all, our cart size was big because it was a, a month's worth of meat subscription. So our average order value, once again, we only had two products. We had a small box and a regular box. But our average order value was like $211 per order per mm. month. And people stayed with us for so long that the lifetime value was through the roof. So because we didn't have to focus as much on acquiring customers, we could take some of that money and just put it towards maintaining our existing customer base. And people say it all the time, but I don't see enough companies um, really doubling down on the fact that it is significantly cheaper and better to maintain and retain your customers than it is to acquire new ones, especially when it's subscription focused. So a lot of that led into why we were able to turn a profit in the food space when a lot of others didn't. And Wallpark, what, what was your LTV on a customer, like lifetime value? About 1500 bucks um, is what we're looking at. 
Um, and once again, you know, I think what ends up happening now is it's like, how do you define the metrics? There's a million and one different ways to do it. We like to think that we always did the most honest ones. You know, we would just take in a year, how many boxes was someone ordering divided by the average order value? And then we've got that and you can get your profit margins from there also. Um, but back into the acquisition. So we work with brokers. Um, so we had some, some bankers that worked with us. And we already knew this, but it was good to get this external validation. But when they did went and found comparable businesses and did the market research and showed their LTV um, and what their retention rates were like, it, it was like that was actually almost a bigger moment in and of itself where it's we saw our numbers compared to the industry average. And we're like, this, this is exactly why we do what we do. And I think that became very attractive to acquirers as well. Mm. So I, I want to dig deep into the actual sale of the company. So you, you mentioned you were working with uh, investment bankers that were, had taken you to market. So like you had, were, did you use the investment bankers to raise the, the subsequent rounds of capital? No. So the only thing we use the investment bankers for was to help find us an acquire and, you know, get all of our uh, documents in order from a pitch okay. perspective. And, and what, um, what preceded that, Mark? Like, what was the trigger that made you hire the investment banker? Yeah, it's it's one of those things you don't know you, what you don't know early on. I always figured that okay, when we're ready to sell, I already know who's going to buy us. It's like going to be a list of these ten companies, the, the most obvious names you could ever think of. And thinking about it now, they're probably completely unqualified. Like, there's probably just no fit whatsoever. But you think that there's like a pool of ten or fifteen companies that are going to buy you, and it's like, how do you get on their radar? Um, in reality, you know, there's a lot more, especially when you start going into the private equity world. So we were getting calls, you know, from the bank, from our banks in general saying, Hey, have you guys thought about acquisition? And we were getting calls from the bank of Canada and all this type of stuff. And we were always pushing it off. Um, but we ended up, there's a, a firm out of the U S um, that reached out and had a good, you know, kind of clicked right away and agreed on a deal that I thought was, was fair because once again, a lot of these firms want monthly retainers which I'm always like, I feel like it's a misaligned incentive. Um, so they came on a great deal and they did an amazing job of opening our eyes and kind of just showing how green we were when it comes to actually going out and looking for potential buyers. I had a list of 15 people that I'd never talked to in my life that I thought were the only people that we could sell to. They came back with a list of 400 that they had deep relationships and connections with. So that alone was really eye-opening. And I think as a founder, we don't really realize early on that there are a lot more acquirers out there than we think. We always think it's a strategic or a competitor that's going to acquire us. But early on, we did all the, the financing ourselves. And it wasn't until about a year before, probably right when we got to profitability, I think is where we started the process. And it was one of those things where it's like, we're not, we're not in a rush. Um, right time, right price. So, so these, so they identified this list of 400 potential acquirers and I'm assuming kind of, you know, did they run a structured process where they sent a teaser, got some interests? How many folks did you start to like do management presentations with that? Like, did you kind of exchange the SIM and get, get a bit more serious with? Yeah. Well, I think once they got the SIM done, yeah, of course they sent it out to pretty much everybody uh, on the list that they thought would be a good fit. Um, I would come in on the second meeting. I, once again, founder, I always wanted to be hands-on and jump in on every initial meeting. And I finally, I wanted to be in every single one of them. And it, we negotiated on, okay, Mark, come into the second meetings. Like when someone is actually, oh, this is the information. Um, and yeah, it was just meeting after meeting and they did a great job of being that buffer and bringing me in whenever it made sense and whenever it was real. 
Um, and then from there, they would, we luckily, once again, amazing team. Luckily, I've got an individual who's an absolute rock star just in document management and everything. So we already had a data center pretty much set up and ready to go. So it was very easy. They were out there reaching out, doing the outreach, trying to find potential acquirers. I would get brought in when things would progress a little bit. And then if they needed access to the documentation, we were ready to go. So I know what was the, tr- what was the trickiest question you got? in those management presentations what was the what was this question that stumped you um <laughs> well the question that i think hurt us the most was well are you sticking around and that was the one where it was like well no actually i'm down to stick around and do a transition period but you know i feel like when i looked at true local i'm very much i like to think i'm a founder i like to build i like to create things i like to kind of be with the scrappy team and watch things grow when it comes to where true local was going and the potential of the brand that would have been created not only had would i have already fulfilled my goal that i had for true local once it was acquired i just truly believe that there are individuals out there who are much more qualified in the food space to watch this go and maybe take it public or whatever the might the might the next phase of the business might be so of course, as soon as you go and talk to an acquirer and you say, hey, look, I got like a two-year max of helping transition, that you start just generating a lot of red flags. And that's just being super transparent, right? I always say that if you're going to start going into these meetings and you're going to start lying about what your motivations are, or even when you tell people, even like on a podcast like this, it's people, you know, you kind of got to really be honest with yourself and investors can see right through that. And if you think that you're going to be able to do something, it's not like signing a it's not like signing a check from an angel, right? And you can kind of say something and then, oh, well, this didn't materialize, but here's the old bait and switch. Like when you look at doing something with an acquisition, that's a marriage. So we were just really transparent early on and it did scare away a lot of acquirers, um, but it also brought the right ones to the table. What did you learn about the best way to answer that question? Because a lot of people listening to this uh, will be trying to anticipate that question and the best way to answer it truthfully without destroying the potential of an acquisition because I think every acquire, not every acquire, but most acquirers will want the entrepreneur to stick around in perpetuity. Most entrepreneurs, not every entrepreneur, but most want to leave the day the check hits the bank account. And so like, there's got to be some middle ground. You were willing to stick around for two years, but what did you learn about the, the more graceful way to answer that question as you started to answer it more and more? Yeah, I think there's a couple parts to that. So even for myself, I always I think a lot of founders think about selling your company, getting the check, and then cool, see you later. When we had an acquirer that came to the table and pretty much said that, hey, we're good. Go ahead. We'll stick around for a couple months and we'll have you out. I think it was like six months. And it's not until it's real that you realize, whoa six months, like that's tomorrow, right? Like we've got all these initiatives, what's going to happen to the team, all these types of things. So it actually kind of sobers you up to the, to you not even knowing that actually you do want to stick around for a while. So I like I like the two year mark um, in terms of, you know, how do you smooth that out? If you're going to be honest with an acquirer, an investor, how are you going to be honest? Well, the, the, it's not, how are you going to answer that? Honestly, it's, do you actually have a good answer for it? What I mean by that is like, you need to have a great management team. So you can't fake that. Right. So it's if you have a great management structure in place, you've got leadership in all the proper areas, and the business isn't 100% reliant on you to run on a day to day, then you have a good answer to say, Hey, listen, you know, it's not like it's not like it was in year three and four or two or even two, right? It's, it's not where it's like, Look, I have to leave the charge every single day. 
you know, I'm proud of the fact that we have 12 amazing managers that have brought the company to where it's at today. And if you take a different leader in place, as long as you can win over the respect of management, you've got the businesses running. So I think like having proper systems in place, proper process in place, proper management team, having the key roles filled makes it a lot easier for you to be able to head out and do your own thing. Um, if you don't have that, I don't know a good way to answer it because you. Do, I don't think you have a good answer. I think it's a real concern for a potential acquirer. Now and that's a. The, so you mentioned some of them when they said two years, they're like, okay, I'm out. I, I want someone who's more long-term committed. Like what was their, what did they say? What did the acquirer say to communicate to you that they wanted a longer commitment than two years? Or what was their rationale? What was their business case to say, hey, Mark, like I get you're a founder, I get you're a builder, but like I need you to be, like we're, we're out if you're, if you're not in it for five years. Like what's their, I, I want to I make sure people hear and start to visualize what they are likely to hear when an, uh, when an acquirer pushes back on your decision to leave? Like what, what was their sort of tenor? Yeah. And one thing I did want to flag also, this is only really relevant to service-based businesses, product-based businesses. If you're a tech company, there's a lot of companies that want to just buy the tech and it's like, cool, see you sure. later. So for us, it, it was very much, you know, the, the execution. So I think from, from their perspective, um, the pushback, and this is probably what a lot of founders get, but you know, we're really good at what we do in terms of laying out a vision and being res- resilient in the face of every challenge that comes your way, right? Founders get punched in the face every single day and they come back harder, at least the ones that are, are at the point of having acquisition conversations. And I think at the time also, we end up becoming sort of a slave to our own success during the time, it was really about pitching what the, the next chapter of the company could be. And I noticed I would kind of get myself into a hole because I really had this beautiful, articulate vision of where I wanted to see True Local go. And I think a lot of it became, well, look, if you're not going to you know, lead the charge on that, we don't want to get involved. And then, of course, you can't backpedal your way out of that. So it's, it's, you get boxed into these corners, which are really frustrating in real time. But in hindsight, they're good because it's not just a one-way street. It's not just a, hey, you buy us. We're selling this product. We're selling this business to you. This is a marriage. So if you get yourself into a situation where you don't weed out, either you weed them out or they weed you out, you're going to get into a relationship that's going to not work. So I just think that it's one of those things like you got to be honest the whole way through. An acquirer will come. If you have a good business, an acquirer will come. But avoiding you know the first three that you don't have alignment with. Um, can save you a lot of trouble. So I think that was the biggest thing is founders tend to be great at pitching, great at building their vision. You you get defined as this key man or key woman. And if you're out, a lot of the times they haven't met the team. They don't know. They, they're taking your word for it. So um, there's that part of it. I guess this piece of advice, it might almost be a, a world where it's, if you're really worried about that, if you are defined at this, as this key founder, there's probably a, a happy balance and an intersection to maybe start bringing some more of the team into the meetings earlier on so that the acquirer can see, oh, well, wait a minute. No, no, there's, there's this amazing three or four other people in this company. It's not just, you know, founder A or founder B. Um, but then, of course, you run into the whole situation of how do you manage the communication with your company that you're, you know, you're going trying to be acquired. So Yeah. And was it... Did- did you and Greg participate in this initial round of meetings or was it just you? It was just me. Um, the way the company ended up settling in terms of that type of stuff, like I settled very much into like the, 
early stage founder transitioning into young CEO. So any of the financing, I let all the financing, um, any of the deals like that, you know, Greg had the trust in me that we're always gonna be able to put good deals together. And Greg focused mostly on sales, product sales, um, and making sure that, you know, our customers were, were getting what they needed. Got it. That makes sense. How many offers did you get? We ended up getting to the wire with three, uh, three serious people that came to the table. Um, and, had- and what were the offers? Like, give, give me a sense of... Like what they top line number, how they structured it. Yeah, I, I, that, I actually can't talk too too much on on the people that didn't end up going through it. But what I can say, and you can read between the lines, is that we had one of the more uh, popular food companies reach out to us and offer us more than the deal that we took uh, with the company that did acquire us. But this was ironically the company that was like, no problem, we'll have you out in six months. We're going to put our whole management team in there. And the one thing that was most important is every single person that I ever hired and I interviewed all of them throughout, I always told them what the goal was. I'm like, listen, I'm looking to sell this company. Um, I will always be the lowest paid employee at this company until the company sells because that's when I get my win. Up until then, I don't want you guys to worry about taking that risk. This is what it's going to be. So people knew that that was the goal, but... Eventually, when it was going to happen, it was still going to be a, you know, it's, it's, it's jarring for people that are used to having job security. So the most important thing for me was that the team was going to be intact. Like I had no interest in any deal with anybody if they were going to come in and put their own team in place. Now, if they wanted to airdrop a couple of executives in, no problem. But to come and do a, a clean sweep, I, there was no interest in that. Like we had people in their place, they were building their careers there. And a lot of the people that wanted to be at True Local, wanted to be in it for the long haul, regardless of an acquisition. So one of the deals that we came in that that was actually significantly higher than uh, the 16.8, the term was that they wanted to come in, they wanted to downsize, they wanted to bring more stuff in-house. And we just walked away from that. Um, they were one of the final three, but when, when we couldn't uh, convince them to keep some of the members on, it was just, okay, we got to move on to something else. Yeah. And, and a merge... Uh, which is an e-commerce business, was the ultimate winning acquirer. They they publicized or, or put out a press release with the number. So I think the 16.8 broke out as 6.5-ish in cash, 4.6-ish in shares, and 4.5 in an earnout. Is that... Am I getting those numbers about right, roughly? Yeah, it sounds about right. Got it. Okay. And so that's super helpful. And so what was the the investor reaction. So you had a couple of investors, the early stage Angels and Michelle and a couple of others. What was their reaction to the 16.8 number? They were happy. Um, I think so we did a round at uh, the, the safe round, then we did a $5 million round, then we did a $13 million round. Um, so at the time, um, the people that came in the latest, they were only in for about a year. So it wasn't like it's, you know, whatever the difference between 13 million and 16.8 from a valuation increase, not the knockout home run that you're probably looking for when you're looking at angel investing. But I was just happy to be able to say, hey, listen, at the time, look, this is a win. Okay, it's my first, you know, kick at the can and we're getting a return here. So they were happy. Um, Definitely some people that were asking, you know, why don't you keep pushing this? Can you can you go a little bit further? But I think once again, this is just a huge testament to angels. I really, really, truly believe that because they were, you know, at the time getting their money back, they were just happy to see us win. They were like, look, this is a good thing. You know, we could be a part of it. The early guys, you know, did, did really well, you know, tripled their money on it. Um, and uh, that, was, that was pretty much it. I think that's uh, also, and of course, you know, in hindsight, you can't imagine what's going to happen with the stock market. 
Um, I think the idea of uh, a portion of that being in, in equity was a win. And, you know, Emerge it has a great plan and a great idea. Um, obviously, they've fallen victim to every other small cap company out there. But to get in with equity on a company that was just going public, so you're getting in on the bottom, it was, it was awesome. It was great. Yeah, yeah. This is my ignorance coming through, but help me understand this. So if I'm a if I'm an early stage investor in your company and I kick in a hundred grand in that safe model that you described, uh, actually no, I, let me let me do the 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 round two where there was a, a priced equity round. So it was a five million dollar valuation. I kick in two hundred fifty k. So I have uh, whatever that is five percent of the company. Let's say this is just hypothetical. Um, when when you sell at sixteen point eight, am I getting my five percent uh, on this? Do I get like the equivalent six point eight in cash out, or do I have to take the commensurate structure, i.e., half of my money in cash, half of my money in shares? Do you know what I'm asking? Of course, yeah. So you get it pro rata, which pretty much means that if you own five percent of the business at the time of acquisition then you are going to get 5% of everything. So you get 5% of the cash component of the deal, 5% of the equity component of the deal, okay. and 5% of the earnouts as well as the deferred income. So that's how it gets okay. split up. Now, I'm very certain that there are scenarios where you can just cash it out. Uh, I, I don't know where that would happen. It would have to be something. It'd probably be a contentious conversation. Maybe an investor's like, this is, you know, I demand this. And the founder's like, fine, just take more of my cash, I'll take more equity. But for us, it was clean across the board. It was whatever uh, percentage of equity you have, you get the corresponding uh, percentage of the cash consideration, stock consideration and all. Yeah, that makes that makes great sense. And, and thank you for clarifying because I've always wondered about that. Okay, so let's go forward. So you had uh, the cash component and then there were shares before we hit record, you were talking a little bit about a nuance. It was sort of a turn of phrase or a very slight difference in in how you structured the the terms of the of the of the shares that you were taking in the acquirers company emerge. Um, can you just describe the the very slight turn of phrase that made a big financial difference? Yeah, it was huge. So I'm going to try not to mess this up, but let's just use simple numbers. So let's say you have a, a $4 million uh, uh, equity consideration. So for example, you're going to get 4 million shares in the parent company. Um, because we were going back and forth for so long, uh, we ended up in a position of leverage and we're able to ask for more. Um, but instead of raising the valuation, because I, I just find like that's a bit of a disingenuous way to do something if you've been negotiating for so long, we just wanted pr- more preferable terms. And the way to look at it was that, okay, instead of getting $4 million worth of shares, we want $4 million in share value. So where I'm going with this is that let's just say that um, at any given time when you're negotiating the deal, you're going to have a, a certain price on the, the shares. Well, if between the time the deal closes and the time you negotiated, the price of the shares go up, well, then you're actually going to receive less shares. Because if you're getting $4 million worth of shares and the shares are $1, well, you're going to get a certain amount of shares. But if you get $4 million worth of shares at, and the shares have gone up to $2, you're going to get less shares. So just last minute catch in a way that really saved the deal because, you know, once again, we wanted more, but it was, you know, this sort of scenario. Um, We ended up getting our 
amount locked in. So it was instead of getting the value worth two million or let's say four million dollars worth of shares, we got four million dollars in shares worth of value. If that makes sense, a little turn. Like sorry, another turn of phrase is a little confusing, but the yeah. idea, the easiest way to look at it is once again, if you got if you're negotiating and the stock price is a dollar and you get four million dollars worth of shares, but by the time the deal closes, the stock is two dollars, you're going to get less shares because they just got to give you. $4 million worth of shares. Whereas if you lock in the amount of shares you're going to get, that equals $4 million. So let's say that's 2 million shares, right? I guess in this scenario, 4 million shares. And the company, the stock price goes up to $2. You're still getting 4 million shares sure. that are now worth $8 million. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So that's something that's really helpful. early on that if you as a founder can kind of put that in there, um, it's not a normal thing. Like it's something you do got to kind of stretch for, uh, but it's, you know, the value is it's huge. It's a, it's a really nice little point. I shouldn't say a little, it's a very subtle, but important uh, nuance when there's a share component of a deal. And I think Mark's done a great job of describing that, but, but talk to your lawyer uh, and make sure that when you're papering this and, and, and agreeing to a share purchase agreement that that you're clear on the difference between the two. Because I think it's a really important point and I'm glad you raise it. Mark, are you up for a quick uh, lightning round of questions before I let you go? For sure. Awesome. What was the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of selling your company? Honestly, just just the like absolutely beating you. It's not It's not super clever or anything, which is beating you into low valuations. Just like absolutely go from this is what it's worth to like attacking your business. That to me is just so slimy. Like you want to acquire a company and now you're just shitting all over every aspect of it. It's just slimy. It's I hate when they do that. Right. So reading between the lines. So you, you, you kind of, they're interested, but then they, they kind of turn Jekyll and Hyde and start to kind of scrutinize your business and your left saying like, why are you picking apart my company? I thought you wanted to buy it. Exactly. But like in, yeah, exactly. And like a, in a brutal way, once again, we, we, we had about, you know, however many meetings and it came down to three. So we didn't get anybody doing any really, really underhanded stuff to us, which I've heard horror stories, but just, that was always one of the ones where just, as soon as you start trying to put a number out there and they just start bashing your company, making up things literally like metrics that don't exist or just trying to be like, well, it's never going to work because of X, Y, Z. That was always something that was really frustrating. What was the biggest mistake you personally made in the process of selling your company? Um, I think the biggest mistake um, that I made would have just been, I think just not getting bankers sooner, to be honest. I think that that was something that we probably would have been able to have more leverage across the board had we done it sooner. And it would have taken a lot of stress off of us as a team if we had just brought them in sooner as well. So I think that that's one of the the absolute biggest mistakes. I guess another one too, really, this is one that's it's it's generic, but it's important. It's like underestimating the time it takes to close a deal when it comes to an acquisition. Due diligence is no joke. And that's something that, you know, that was a mistake that we made. We thought it was going to be something fairly quick and it was not. What was the lowest emotional point you reached during the process? Um, I always like to say that when you have a goal, whether it be financial or success or business or whatever it might be, um, you're going to face the biggest possible challenge you are ever going to face right before you actually reach that goal. 
So the whole idea is that your challenges are going to meet your meet your ambition. If you have the ambition of selling a company for millions, well, you're going to be in the top 10% of people that are dealing with crazy challenges. Um, so that low point came when I was always very, very, very definitive. When I used to say, take a deal, do not fight for a deal when you're in your first deal, because what you can accomplish when you have all of your baser needs met, which is what money provides is so much higher than what you could do if you, um, are working at a scarcity as a founder. So take that first deal, get that nest egg, and then you're good. I used to preach that all the time and to, to a fault. And then it was crazy because then when it became my turn to actually just listen to that and say, don't be greedy. Like there are good deals on the table. I went through like mental anguish trying to pick between um, an LOI and pick between an acquire. Like the, when it came down to the last two and I, I made me start wanting to be a bit more aggressive um, when I sh- in situations that I shouldn't have been in that could have potentially lost the deal all because I was acting out of character, all because I was facing the the final boss battle that I needed to get through before getting everything I ever wanted. And ironically, it took all of the learnings, all of the challenges, all of the, uh, all of the, the holes that we dug ourselves out of for five years, all of that experience and growth that was acquired during that five years, all got put to use in the however many months of due diligence and negotiation we had. And had I not gone through those challenges before, I never would have survived the due, di- the due diligence period just because every single day, our deal was on edge of not happening. And that's tough when you're staring down the barrel of everything you've ever wanted and to know that every single day something could happen to the point where our deal needed to close in 2020. If it went into 2021, there was no deal. It closed on December 31st. It closed on New Year's. And that's not by design. That was because every day I kept getting pushed from something, you know, something, something. And to your point, sorry, I know this is lightning round, but actually I think the one thing that we messed up on early on for the listeners is that get your... uh, your financial institutions and professional services on board early that you're doing an acquisition. We were trying to wrangle down the banks to sign off on the change of power in between Christmas and New Year's. Good luck. Good luck with that. So hop on that stuff early. Yeah, that's great. Uh, That's great advice. What was the highest moment you reached in the process of selling your company? Emotionally high. Um, Honestly, just the... I, we recorded the phone call um, when it happened. It was at 9 p.m. on New Year's. And we actually didn't know if this was a call to close or if it was a call to say that it wasn't happening. So I've always said, you know, the all the, the fun fluff that comes with selling a company is great. But that moment, it's like you're winning your Super Bowl, right? Like it's your moment. And I can't describe how it felt. It wasn't this like crazy cheering celebration. It was just like, the phone hung up. We had some champagne, like just the bottle. And it was just like silence and this surreal moment of everything you've worked so hard for, you accomplished it, you achieved it. Like forget all the things that are going to come with it. Like you set out to do something that nobody thought you could do. Not only did they not think you could do it, you had the world throwing all of these challenges at you. You beat that, doing it your way and you're here, you did it. And that I think brings you to a new level as a person and like as a human that just now what's next, right? Like what now you just imagine what you can accomplish after that. So once again, sounds cliche, but man, any founder out there that's still hunting in in the trenches and, and trying to make it happen, that moment alone, when you get to that point is worth all of it. Well said. What resources did you turn to to educate yourself about selling your business? I'm looking to point... Uh, our listeners to a book, a conference, um, 
something that they can go to or, or read from or learn from to really educate themselves about the process of selling? Yeah. Well, I would say don't sell your guys short, right? I, I, I was joking about this, but I've been a long time listener of Built to Sell and just hearing the stories, you guys do such an amazing job of bringing founders on that can just talk about things that only people who went through it have gone through. But the one that I would say is reach out. This is the, the number one thing. Um, books are g- generic, right? So they don't necessarily apply to every aspect. Online content is obviously great. You can find a lot of answers, but you don't know, is it legit or not? Find founders in your city, state, province, country that have done it recently and just hit them up on LinkedIn. They are absolutely down to talk, at least in my experience. Um, anybody, if you're thinking about selling a company and you know someone who's maybe your demographic, your age, your company size that has sold, call them up because they will give you just checklist after checklist of what worked for them, what didn't work for them. And then you're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. So that's the recommendation I would say is go on LinkedIn, do a quick Google search. Who's had a company acquired in my area and reach out to them. That's where you're going to get your, that's the best. That's the ultimate resource. Yeah, that's, that's awesome advice. And I wholeheartedly concur for sure. Last question. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy. What did you, what did you go buy to commemorate the win? Well, now I'm a race car driver. Uh, oh yeah? yeah, what'd you buy? Uh, so, well, my 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 car, my baby is an Audi R8, um, which okay. is uh, you know once again full circle for me. Growing up with holes in my shoes, um, I'd always been a car guy, and the R8 is the car that got me into cars. Um, so, having that sit in my driveway right now is you know something that every day puts a smile on my face. But then I also got into driving race cars, like actual race cars. So I've got a BMW race car sitting beside it. And then this year, um, we're racing in the Canadian uh, Pro Series called FEL, and I'm racing a, an AMG GT4. Uh, wow. It's so the Mercedes AMG GT4 race car. So any race fans, uh, like hit me up. By all means, love to have you come out to a race, and, and I'll show you my trophy. <laughs> wow. Okay. So which is which of the three cars, the BMW, the AMG, or the R8 is the fastest? Uh, well, straight line, the R8, but my BMW would whoop the R8 on a track for sure. Cause that thing is a purpose built race car. Wow. Okay. So you're like, this is cool. I've never actually talked <laughs> to somebody who actually owns real race cars. So that's really neat. Um, and you put some of your wisdom into a book. Um, I think it's originally how we found you. True founder is the name of the book. Just describe for me why you wrote the book. Yeah, this book is the book that I wish I had whenever I was starting True Local. And that's just because there are so many things online um, and business coaches that are teaching how to do business and preaching all these concepts. But the reality is when you get into business, none of that stuff applies or a very small amount of it applies. Really, all you're doing every day is problem solving, like getting punched in the face. Eventually, you start trying to learn how to dodge some of those punches rather than taking all of them. But you learn that through experience. So this book is just, you know, explaining a lot in a lot more detail, some of the challenges that we faced at True Local um, and then how we dealt with it and some of the learnings that came out of it. And the whole idea is it's it's by a first time founder for a first time founder. So that's the main focus. Um, it's kind of trying to cut through all the bullshit. It's like, look, this is going to be hard. Okay. So here are the tips and tricks that you can use to get, you know, ahead um, in where you're at. And it's everything from becoming a pre- professional problem solver to should you hire for talent or experience versus hiring friends to what's it like to work with agencies, right? I think a lot of founders struggle with figuring out, should I use a marketing agency? Should I outsource my development? Um, all the way through to, you know, how do you create company culture in a small startup? Like, how do you actually do that? And it's all just our experiences. The book comes out February 7th. Um, Forbes is the publisher. 
And it's just for anybody out there who feels like they're either in a hole um, in their current business and feels like they're alone um, and either need someone to show that there is no guidebook really to this and it's supposed to be hard all the way through to anyone who's looking to start their first company and wants a bit of a head a head start. Awesome. So the book is called True Founder, available where books are sold. And Mark, if people want to hit you up on social, what's the best channel to do that? Where can they find you? Yeah, hit me up on Instagram, uh, Instagram and LinkedIn. So on Instagram, it's simple, Dark Mark, D-A-R-K-M-A-R-C underscore. And then uh, on LinkedIn, it's just under Mark LaFleur. Awesome. <laughs> and we'll put both of those handles in the show notes at builttosell.com. Mark, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between Mark LaFleur and John. If you did, be sure you hit that subscribe button. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including Mark's appearance on Dragon's Den, be sure to head over to the show notes page at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, There you'll have the opportunity to nominate either yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. Thank you.